Welcome, uh, my name is Thomas Steininger. I welcome you to Radio Evolve, our weekly webcast for consciousness and culture. Uh, today, I'm very honored uh, to, ha to have here with me Chai Naidu from South Africa. Uh, Chai Naidu, welcome to the show. Thank you, Thomas. Pleasure to be with you. Chai Naidu, you are, uh, for your life, a freedom fighter. You have a long-standing history for social justice activism, and you were also founding General Secretary of the Congress of the South African Trade Unions. And you are also, uh, you were also participating in the Afri first African Integral Conference, which uh, took place in the beginning of June this year. And we thought to take the opportunity to talk with you about an integral perspective of social activism in South America, and also to see how social activism in South Africa is not an isolated phenomenon, basically, in the world that we're living in right now. What is happening in any part of the world is connected to any other part of the world. So if I would, uh, I would like to start and ask you, you were working for decades for social justice in South Africa. South Africa really achieved a tremendous uh, uh, achievement when you got rid of apartheid regime in a peaceful way. But since then, South Africa is also in, diff in difficult territory, in difficult water. Would you say that uh, the South African development is successful? Are you scared where it's going? Are you hopeful where it's going? How is South Africa today? Well, I think South Africa is a country like many in the world, in fact, nearly every country that is experiencing many challenges of understanding truly what democracy means and how democracy can deliver also the material needs of people. Because what we are characterized by in South Africa is rising inequality, rising poverty, the fact that many young people, probably more than 50% of them, that go through 12 years of education, come out with very few skills because our education system is so poor, and therefore don't have the, the possibility of a decent livelihood in the time. It's also a characteristic across the world, so we are not unique in that. The rise in inequality in the world, the rise of right-wing populism that we are seeing, almost a, a, a type of neo-fascism that is coming to the fore, which is uh, something that is deeply troubling because it comes in a context where there is tremendous transition taking place in the world, transitions in terms of us facing an ecological emergency where scientists in the world are telling us, literally, if we do not change how we live on this world, we have literally a decade after which the, the climate change becomes exponential and the world becomes a hostile place for our children, grandchildren, and the generations that come after us. So, yes, I am hopeful, but if we do not get this right and do the right things as humanity, then I think we have to ask ourselves a question. Do we have a right to be here mm. as as a species of homo sapiens, given that the world has already seen five extinctions 
in the 4.6 billion years that, we have li- that the planet has existed. But we are now going through the sixth extinction, which is generated largely because of our human greed, because we have lost touch with who we are. We have lost touch with what our role and purpose is. So if you come back to South Africa and you look back in our history, you know, in 1990, when Mandela came out of prison, you know, the entire world was expecting us to descend into a state of a racial civil war. And in fact, that was, the writing was on the wall, 350 years of extreme exploitation, racism, discrimination, prejudice had created a low-scale civil war in our country. But because we had strong organizations on the ground, which came out of the social activism that built powerful movements like the trade union movement, women's movements, youth movements, rural movements, the ANC in itself became a mass movement. We, we built layers of leadership from the bottom up Mm-hmm. And so that sustained us because it generated tens of thousands of leaders who were able to hold the space while our leaders were negotiating to find the political settlement. So the question then is, how did we manage to step back from a precipice of a racial civil war? And that's because of leaders, particularly like the generation of Nelson Mandela, who carried with them uh, a deep and sincere and passionate commitment to serve their people. And because we believed that we had an equal right as any other human being to participate in a democracy, to have hope, to have a pathway of opportunity, to have democracy. So I think that in a sense, what allowed us to do that was our ability to, as protagonists on both sides of the, of the table, to rise above our constituencies mm-hmm. and to create a situation where we started to look for the common ground rather than what divided us. And remember that the National Party under de Klerk had started off a negotiation on the basis that white people would have a veto right in the democracy. And our demand was very simple on our side, led by Nelson Mandela. One person, one vote in a unitary, non-sexist, non-racial democracy. And eventually we were able to convince the negotiators on the other side that it did not make sense to give human beings different rights because we had to identify what it meant Mm. to be human. And that's what created the political miracle. Mm. But the political miracle was the constitution, which at the heart of which sat our commitment to tackle the legacy of apartheid Mm. around a social justice perspective and vision that we are all equal. And therefore, we had a commitment that everyone in our country would be have the same equal rights. If I, if I may ask you, because still what happened at that time in South Africa is, is an example for the whole world. And it is a miracle as you're describing it. And you, you, you described how on both sides people were able to come together beyond their own constituency 
and, and, and look for the common good. Looking back several decades, what made this miracle possible? Do you think there are some particular ingredients that made this, because everyone was thinking this never will work, it will be a civil war. It did not become a civil war. Uh, of course, someone like Nelson Mandela as a personality held a lot in this. But you, as someone who was closely involved in all of that, and now after uh, quite some years, uh, do you have a clear impression why this became possible? Just as a lecture of the world? <clears throat> Well, I think it's a basis of trust. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> there was trust in our negotiations that took place. When Mandela left Victor Fester, the prison, after 27 years, what he said that if I did not leave this prison with the notion that I do not carry vengeance or revenge in my heart, then I would be truly free. But if I left intending to take revenge on those that had jailed me and caused such distress in my life, then I will still continue to remain a prisoner. So that was the character of the leadership that we had and that characterized all of us, that we participated in the freedom struggle because we believed in the concept of of racial unity, we believed in non-racialism, we believed we are all equal, that we are all connected to each other. But what Mandela didn't promise to do, and that's what his mandate, was to create a, a safe container within which we would have to do the work that had to be done to address the legacy of apartheid. And if we look over the last 25 years, We have done some things right. We have done some things dramatically wrong. So there's the good, the bad, and the ugly. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the idea that Mandela was going to solve the land issue, he was going to solve hunger, he was going to economically restructure the country so that everyone had equal opportunity, was a myth. That was not his mandate. It rested on us who led after him to do the actual work to rebuild this country from the bottom up. Unfortunately, much of that work was not done, and particularly in the last decade before the new president, Cyril Ramaphosa, came into power, we had a, a decade in which, in fact, leadership ended up serving themselves, rather than what Mandela characterized being a servant leader where our role as leaders in government or business or civil society was an intention to make a better life for all our people. Mm -hmm. So I think that if you look at the degree of success we had, we had strong organizations on the ground. There was a strong commitment to a negotiation with our partners uh, around creating a new constitution. And we had the notion of leaders like a Mandela who integrated even the extreme right wing into the democratic process. So they participated in that first election in 1994. And I think that was the basis where everyone believed post-1994 that we could restructure the country, we could make this country a, a country that people would look to as a model, And it still remains our intention to do that. 
you know, in spite of all the difficulties, we still are committed to that path, and that trajectory. But now they say that each generation has to find its voice, its struggle, its destiny. And so now it remains on the generations that have come after us as the, one who, as the ones who pioneered democracy to define what democracy means to them and what they mean to do in order to shape this democracy. And I think this brings me back to something that I think deeply affected me because I think having left when Nelson Mandela left because I was part a minister in his cabinet, uh, I felt that in, you know, over the, a, a long time that something was wrong, that we are missing something. And eventually that brought me into a space where I recognized that in fact, one of the most important challenges we face as humanity today is to understand what it means to be human to understand what it means to have purpose in life. Mm. If we so, really can, uh, can, can hone in there, because that, that's a very fascinating point, because right now we were talking about so, social and political issues, but you said the one thing that really is missing here is we have to understand who we are as human. Why is this so important for this context that you're talking about? Because... As we know, not just in South Africa, but across the world, you know, fighting for a system like democracy today uh, is very important. You know, we had a political miracle and it still remains a political miracle. But the question we have to ask is, is changing the system sufficient to deal with us meeting the needs of all our people and understanding our purpose or what it means to be human. Mm -hmm. And I think that changing a system is only part of that equation. In fact, a more important part was how do we change the human being? And then the question comes is, what is this human being? Mm -hmm. You know, so who are we? You know, and mm -hmm. what I've started to understand as a result of my journey within myself, because mm -hmm. that's the only place I will find out who I am. And this is something that Mandela understood. You know, at one point in the time when I was the Minister of Reconstruction Development in his office, we had a conversation and he asked me about reconstruction and development, which was the cross-cutting program around meeting the needs of all our people. And so he said, what about the RDP of the soul, the reconstruction and development of the soul? Given that we have had extreme conflict in this country and we carry a wound, a wound where whether people were white and had a feeling of, uh, of being more important than black people or whether it was a feeling that we had of being inferior because we were not white. Now, when I grew up, I did believe that I was inferior to to white people. It was the most terrible feeling of feeling that I was not the same as a white person. I was not allowed to go into the same library, the same bus. I was discriminated against, had to go to different schools. Even in the Indian Ocean, which is my ancestry is Indian, I was not allowed to go anywhere where I wanted, except for certain defined spaces. 
So we were always seen as non-beings, non-whites. So white was the point of reference. It was only when I was a teenager at around 14 or 15, when I went to listen to an extremely charismatic and powerful leader of students called Steve Biko, who created a birth and movement called Black Consciousness, where I started to understand that I could be black and be proud of it. And that's one thing that he said, which goes back 45 years now, is, you know, we as black people have nothing to lose but our change, our chains, because the mind of the oppressed is the main weapon in the hands of the oppressor. And suddenly I understood that I was complicit in my own oppression. And so what happened is that my anger that I felt about this exclusion, about being a non-human being as defined by apartheid, suddenly got a purpose. I found a cause. And that's what I dedicated my life to, fighting for the freedom of our people. But if I come back today and I say, well, is this some place we have to go deeper than the mind? And that's the reality. Because the mind is but a, uh, a cesspool of cravings, of ego, of anger, of emotions, of desires. And, and so if I remain just in my mind, it means I do not connect with my heart, where my soul sits. And what Mandela said is that the most difficult journey in life is a journey from the head to the heart, mm-hmm. because that's where you find the seat of the soul, our commitment and understanding of what it means to be human, mm-hmm. to live with love, with compassion, with forgiveness, and trying to build reconciliation mm-hmm. in our society. So I felt that, you know, I started to explore this. And uh, it came in, in, in the midst of trying to understand what is happening with our humanity. Why are we doing the things we are doing to this Mother Earth that gives us everything that is priceless? The air we breathe, the, the water we are made of and that gives us life and makes us, allows us to grow food. Why, why do we have so many layers of separation? And so I'll go back to this point of saying in South Africa, it's clear that while we made a commitment to solve the wound that was caused by apartheid, we didn't take the steps that were necessary to repair that wound. So what happens is that wound festers. It explodes in xenophobia, mm-hmm. where we attack people coming from other, other African countries. We, it, it, gender violence, violence against children, the type of road rage we see. But it's also something characteristic of the world. If you start listening to the politicians that are are riding the wave of right-wing populism and the language they use, it's always about what is separating us from other people. So first of all was dealing with that separation between me and a person who is also a human being who is different to me. And so then it came to the understanding of what separates me from the trees and the forest, what separates me from, from the streams and the oceans and the deserts. And then I began to understand that, in fact, my mind is 
not just one part of who I am. Mm -hmm. It's my mental being. I also have an emotional being. Mm -hmm. You know, and this emotional being is characterized by very fluctuating emotion. Mm -hmm. Sometimes anger, sometimes love, sometimes hate, sometimes love. It's, it's so many different things that happen to us in the course of our lives. If I... So I think that what happened is, what I saw in South Africa is that this wound now explodes whenever something happens. Someone says something on social media, something, someone does something to someone standing in a queue. And so we are unable as a country to have an identity and mm -hmm. therefore you cannot build a nation until we go to the core of that wound, mm -hmm. is how do I see myself in relation to others? Yeah. How do I see myself in relation to the environment and things that exist on this planet? Mm -hmm. And that means I've got to go deep within myself to understand who I am and understand that I am more than just this costume mm -hmm. that I'm wearing. That deep within me is the real me. Mm -hmm. Costume yeah. that I wear is disposable. What you describe makes a lot of sense. Uh, also, that you described how you felt that you also had to go to this inner journey. Uh, what I really would like to ask you, how does this, what you were just laying out, and what is a, also a very personal inner journey for everyone, how does this translate to a different form of social activism? Or does it translate? Does this insight or uh, th this dimension that you bring in change the way how we work as social activists, as, as, as people who change also uh, the social environment or political environment, does this also translate to our outer actions? Absolutely. It determines everything about our outer actions. It determines who we are. Mm -hmm. so if we start to understand that deep within us is that fragment of the divine grace and that our role is to evolve ourselves in this human existence to a point where we begin to understand our true purpose and begin to look at a reunion with that divine source. And all of this came about because of my interactions with people of indigenous wisdom, of indigenous mm -hmm. faith. You know, I, uh, several years ago, I traveled with a group of people to go and meet a shaman who was one of the last remaining knowledge holders of the sand in the Kalahari in Namibia. And, uh, He was then 87 years old. He's now 90 plus. And, uh, and he, it, this was a man who barely could, couldn't speak English, couldn't read or write, uh, had never been to school. But when I spent time with him in his very, in his hut with very little possessions in the middle of a, the Kalahari desert, what I understood was a lot more about what I don't know. Hmm. And so from, he became one of my greatest teachers and he played this instrument, which was probably the original harp made from a disused oil can. And he had played a sacred music of, of prayers and songs, sacred songs that came through his lineage. The San, the Khoisan, our oldest living ancestors. They probably go back 60 to 70,000 years. So they carry the original knowledge. And I felt, and he was almost blind. So I brought him to Johannesburg 
so that he could get medical attention and try to correct his cataracts and restore some of his eyesight, which we did. And he spent two months with me in my house. And even though we barely were able to communicate, just listening to him play his music uh, and, and, and sing his sacred prayers had a tremendous influence in me starting to understand that there's something deeper to me than just my involvement in this outer world. And so I started a journey which led me towards connecting with uh, you know, healers from the Amazon, from indigenous people, from India, from the rest of Africa, from looking at some of the great healers of South Africa, like Credo Mutwa, who was one of the great prophets of this country. And what I found is that, in fact, it's really important for us to start going back to the beginning of the beginning to understand the start of our journey so that we understand where we went wrong. Now, this is a particular talent of the Khoisan people. They go to the original flaw and they use their prayers and their, their faith to try and correct that. But it also brought me in touch with the extreme pain that indigenous cultures go through across the world. You know, and these indigenous cultures are in fact at the forefront of protecting Mother Earth. Mm -hmm you know, in many places around the world. But they've been exterminated. They've been attacked. They've been demonized. They've been massacred. And yet they hold the key to all the challenges we face today with the world that we have. And so I go back to the, the role in Africa. You know, Africa has lived under the shadow of colonialism, slavery, apartheid, extreme brutal exploitation, and I still think that part of the solution for us as Africans is to recognize where we come from, to know where we come from, so that we know where we are today and know where we want to go. And so I think that the resurgence uh, of, of African spirituality is important, not just for Africans themselves to understand who we are, but it's important for the world because it was Africa and people from Africa who were Africans that migrated to all parts of the world and became U.S. nations. And so what I learned in, if I had to think about what I missed in, the, in, in my time as an activist that I know today, one is we had no notion of the environment and we were socialists, yeah. You know, and we believed that, you know, it was an egalitarian system. You know, it was, it appealed to us, the idea of equal rights, equal pay, a society that is dedicated to supporting everyone who belonged to it. But if I look at it, whether you were socialist, capitalist, democrat, or whatever you were, you still saw the environment, Mother Earth, as serving us. We were the head of the feeding chain. We were the predator. Unlike the prey we were when we first came onto this earth as our species 200,000 years ago. And so I started to understand that, in a sense, I was also guilty of contributing, even though I was a social activist, fighting for the rights of workers, of contributing to the ecological emergency that threatens the future heritage of our children and grandchildren. So I think that was one important thing, that at the center of everything is the environment. 
we are part of nature. We are not apart from nature. So when Gubi, who is the Khoisan leader that I know, or many of these indigenous leaders, they look at a forest, they don't see timber that could be cut down to, to earn money and become rich. They see the spirit of the forest, the spirit of the river, the spirit of the ocean, the spirit of the desert. They see the connection between themselves and everything around them. They don't look at God and think that he's only in a temple or a church or a, you know, a, a mosque or a synagogue. They look at God and they see it all around us, in the air we breathe, in the water that flows from the heavens. So what I started to understand was that, in fact, my, my connection with nature, as it's the greatest teacher I will have, is, is what makes me know who I am. The second thing was the way in which we developed our social systems, our economic systems, our political systems was brutal. It was hierarchical and it was patriarchal. So we've come through an age of brutal patriarchy, which crushed the sacred feminine. And what I understand today, it has, you know, gender equality has to go beyond just parity and pay. It has to recognize the role that women play in the society, the nurturing role, the protection role. So if you go back again to the Native Americans, they think, you know, when, when a Native American community or tribe has to go to war, you know, in certain of these tribes, they have a grandmother's council, which makes the final decision. And what the grandmothers take into consideration is what would this mean in seven generations from now? Now, how many of us today, even the most educated and, and uh, you know, intellectual person, we don't think, we think about today, what can I get done for myself that benefits me and my, my children or my family or my community or my political party? We're not thinking seven generations from now. And I think that, that, in this, that type of wisdom that exists in the first, in the first nations, mm -hmm. in the indigenous cultures is so important to understand reciprocity, to mm -hmm. understand the idea of synchronicity, to understand our connection with nature, to understand ambiguity, to understand uncertainty. Mm -hmm. We've always lived with uncertainty, but the more we separate ourselves from who we actually are, the more difficult it gets to manage the world. And that's why we end up in a situation where millions of people are antidepressants. If I, and in fact, is this a symptom of the fact that we have become so alienated from who we are, mm -hmm. that we've lost touch mm -hmm. with why we are here? If I may ask you, as a white European man, uh, what, what you are describing, the importance of indigenous wisdom, and particularly also the role of Africa as being the cradle of humanity, that uh, in the times that we are living also has the potential and maybe the necessity to change dramatically the relationships between the nations. I mean, colonialism, at least the formal colonialism is over, but uh, uh, in some way it's not over at all. Uh, you, Europeans, in, in, in some way we are also indigenous people, in our, but basically the European identity is very much... Uh, with European enlightenment, rationality, uh, democracy, capitalism. But what you're describing is something that uh, people 
like your people in South Africa or people in, in, in Latin America or in, in other parts are much more connected than we Europeans are. How does this change the relationship between the cultures or how do we have to change the relationship to the cultures to form from this a new form of global community uh, that is needed to create a, a global future for all of us? Well, I think that, you know, the, the third element that I had missed in my time as a social activist was the connection with myself and my spirit. And that's what, I, as I decode Mandela, spending 27 years in a prison cell, you know, if you do not connect with who you are, you will go insane. And so what do we have with a person like Mandela? Is someone who was in touch with who he is and he understood his spirit, and that's why he was able to radiate this powerful energy when he entered the room, because he carried the light in his heart. So within us, we dance with light and darkness. It's not one is good and one is bad. It's just what is there. You know, they say that, that at the beginning, all matter was inconscient, had no consciousness, but out of that was darkness, was born light. And so there's this eternal dance between light and darkness that we've got to understand. And so part of my journey over the last few years was a very deep journey within to face my own shadow. And because I was an activist in a leadership position, a lot of my emotions, a lot of my anxieties, a lot of my demons, I buried. You know, I described it like a Brazilian fruit stand that I used to see in Rio in 1980. You know, all brightly colored bottles. And every time there was a, a deep emotion that troubled me, I bottled it. And so it came to a point where after starting this journey, the message was, you've got to face your shadow. And then it began the dark night of the soul, basically, to go inside myself. And although it's been an extremely painful journey where I had to deconstruct who I was, I've begun to reconstruct who I want to be and what my role is being. And one of the deep wisdoms that comes out of, uh, out of indigenous wisdom is the notion of rites of passage. Now, even in Europe, you know, certainly if you go back into the history of Europe, you will find indigenous wisdoms. You'll find indigenous cultures. A lot of that has been crushed and wiped out, like you say, by the Renaissance, by the way in which religion has played its role. And it's not just Christianity, but I think religion generally has, has become more of the ritual of religion rather than the essence of what the prophets talked about. And so I think that as we begin to understand that the journey within is to connect to your inner self, to connect to the higher self, to seek the union with the divine source and to bring that knowledge and light back down into our world and how we perform and work as whether as a journalist or as, a, as an activist or as a person in government, business or civil society. How should we be? What should be our role? What should be the value system that we hold as important that sees the connection between myself and yourself, because ultimately, even if you go into your DNA and my DNA, we are 99.9% .9 identical. 
So there's very little that divides us, but we've created many layers of separation. And what we've got to understand is that that's part of the journey. Earth is a school. It's a laboratory. So it's a laboratory where the cosmic consciousness is able to ex experiment with finding a way in which having the spirit within a human body is able to evolve because we have free choice, but we have duality. So we can choose to be selfish. We can choose to be unselfish, or we can choose to be selfless. We could choose love, or we can choose hate. That's part of our evolution. And as we evolve, then I do not see a difference between myself and the plants that exist outside here. I do not see this difference between me and you. I do not see the difference between myself and a woman. But all I see is the spirit and the soul. And the soul is all connected to each other. And so we ultimately are part of the cosmos. That's where we come from. And the entire cosmos, the entire planetary system, the entire multiverse is all made up of the same things that we are made up of. So what we, part of our evolving evolution of rising our consciousness is to see the end of that separation. And that's coming. I think today a lot of people are awakening, not people of my generation, unfortunately, because we're still stuck in our old ways that are archaic and destructive. But if you look at young people today, the, the way in which they are speaking out, you know, you look at Greta Thunberg and thousands like her across the, the world are standing up and say, we've had enough. We do not accept your system because your system threatens our future existence. And if you refuse to act, we are going to act. And I fully support them. Mm. You know, and I think this is what one should understand about you know, uh, integral education or integralism is to understand what it means to be human. Who yeah. are we? What are we doing here? What is our purpose? What is the meaning of our life? And if it's anything other than carrying compassion and love and forgiveness, then we have missed the plot. JV, also, unfortunately, at the end of our time, but I, I thank you very much for uh, the, the whole journey you led us through from the development of the South African miracle, uh, basically also what people of the generation of Mandela did, the, the difficulties and how this is related also to the necessity to find uh, indigenous wisdom, as you laid out. So uh, just thank you very much for sharing this with you. Well, it's a great pleasure, Thomas, and uh, look forward to us hearing the, the way in which people are engaging with what I said. I think a large part of my role now is supporting and giving aerial cover to young people so that they can assert themselves about what is the world they want. Also defending and advancing indigenous wisdom And so we are looking to find a way in which people that understand true spirituality, mm. the true meaning of what it means to be human, coming together to convene a set of conversations like this across the world. So I really look forward to us interacting with you or listeners that you are, to connecting with them, to finding the way in which we can bring humanity back to the path of truth.
of absolute truth, of understanding why we are Mother Earth, of understanding that we are part of this Mother Earth, and understanding that our custodianship of this Mother Earth is to preserve this priceless gifts that we've been given for the future generations that come after us. So thank you very much. Thank you very much.